I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Team Human is commercial-free and supported entirely by listeners who gain access to our bonus content, Discord channel, and special events. One of those special events is coming up on Friday, August 6th at 1 p.m. Eastern in our Discord Audio Lounge, a special salon with today's guest, Jeremy Lent. So join Team Human players like Elena Philpot, Andy Jacob, Human, Darren Bu and Kay, who are keeping this show on the air by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we interrogate the assumptions underlying our society and work to distinguish between dead ideas and living truths. A conscious effort at reconnecting with some subtler ways of life that engender a sense of squishy encounter with the others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, longtime friend and team player, author of The Patterning Instinct and the new book, Web of Meaning, Jeremy Lent. We live in an interconnected world, and our very identity is actually a function of that connectedness. Jeremy will be helping us see through to the meaning that informs our existence, so it can be used to embrace the paradox and complexity of our existence, rather than reducing it down to a form suitable only for exploitation. It's time to intervene on behalf of people, I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I've been reading a lot lately about a really well-meaning effort at Brandeis called the Prevention Advocacy and Resource Center. And they came up with this thing called the Oppressive Language List, which is a, a really well-meaning effort to make language less oppressive. And what they've done is come up 
with a list that includes mostly, it's mostly labels like slave to describe an enslaved person or prisoner for someone who's incarcerated or victim for someone who's been victimized. And the idea here is that these labels are wrong because turning someone's oppression or their their life situation into a label is forcing an identity onto them. And it's especially destructive when such labels become derogatory, like uh, imbecile for people with a certain IQ range or dumb for people who are incapable of speech. So a lot of the effort behind reforming language amounts to uh, replacing one euphemism for another less offensive or limiting one, at least temporarily. You know, crippled becomes handicapped, becomes disabled, becomes differently abled, or learning problems become special needs, which in turn become learning differences. But these iterations never seem to last. And I think that's because even when these words don't take on negative connotations, simply using a word to classify a human being, that's got a tendency to reduce them to just that thing. It really doesn't matter which expression we use. The harm invoked may be less a symptom of prejudice, oppression, or even white supremacy than the mere affordances of our language system, which I guess then could be argued, well, the language system is white supremacist. You know, English and similar languages, they break things up into subjects and objects, nouns and verbs. In most of our sentences, a subject is acting upon a subject, as in, I pick the flower. The power relationship, the subject and object pairing, it's built into the very construction of the sentence. And nouns themselves they're even more troublesome. Not all languages label objects so distinctly. Once children in an English-speaking environment, once they realize they've got names for things, usually about two or three years old, you know, they become fascinated with knowing the names for everything, pointing their fingers at the every object in the universe, asking, what's this? What's that? What's this? What's that? You know, and as studies have shown, American mothers emphasize the names of objects more than mothers in some other cultures and other language systems. And that's because our language and culture, it emphasizes separateness, individuality, and thingness more than some other ones where the language tends to be more verb dominant. So the Western tendency, it's to label things and people, it, it may be an embedded property of our language, you know, which in turn informs how we look at one another in the world. A world of things, of labeled things, it's more static, more easily understood in terms of ownership and control, self and other property, right? Our language, it's enabled certain forms of empirical science and industrialism and capitalism, among other things like, like slavery and domination, right? And that rely on objectification and categories. You know, the language served us a bit less well as we seek to understand whole systems and relativism and relationships. You know, Alfred Korzybski, the founder of General Semantics, he had a student, uh, D. David Borland, who came up with this linguistic device that he called E-prime. 
And Robert Anton Wilson was a big fan of this. And the idea was to help break some of those tendencies. So he came up with all these rules. And one of the main ones was to eliminate all forms of the verb to be from English. So you can't say this is money. You'd have to say, we use this piece of paper to represent money. So it's tricky to use all the time, but E prime, it sure does help us avoid a lot of semantic errors, right? She is this, he is that, while also forcing us to use language more precisely, right? That the paper in your pocket it's not really money, no more than a person is autistic. But all this, it cuts both ways, informing not just our modes of oppression, but the linguistic traps we can fall into as we try to undo them, right? Many of our, our best efforts at social justice, they end up becoming arguments over which labels to use rather than questioning the use of labels at all, right? If we're not going to be our labels, then a lot of the announcements and definitions we're being asked to make about ourselves, they may have to be retired as well. You know, I've been on a whole bunch of Zoom calls where we're asked to describe ourselves in case anyone in the meeting is a person with low vision or low sight. So we all introduce ourselves as like cis white male or queer brown woman or central Asian with light skin, as if our race or gender or sexuality were necessarily a component of the video image. You know, rather than helping create a picture for those who can't see us, these kind of requirements, they really just force us to make and share conclusions about ourselves. And most of this really is a function of the structure of our language. But our language doesn't need to determine how we relate to ourselves and one another unless we're unaware of those biases and unwilling to both you know, work around them and maybe more important, hear around them. We can be angry at English for using so many nouns, but changing this, it would require we roll back its development almost like to the point of origin and then remaking the language in less objectified and more holistic ways. That's a bit like being angry at the walls of Western architecture because we can't walk through them. Living in houses with rooms, it does lead to compartmentalized thinking. So I can complain that you've compartmentalized me when you show me to the guest room. You know, in, in some other place or even a whole society, they may not have rooms at all, but big open floor plans. So those of us angry about compartmentalized living, we can look over there and say, oh, look how much better they are. They've got no walls. People just love each other. And you go over and speak to them, and they're jealous of our walls. Wow, you can make love privately without having to wait for everyone else to fall asleep. That must be so cool. So yes, we should continue to evolve our use of language to make more people comfortable, less negatively distinguished, and free from labels. But we have to do so with more awareness of the underlying structure of the language that we're using. It's inherently objectifying tendencies, and the challenge it poses to even the most good-willed speakers to engage thoughtfully and sensitively with others. You know, making our terminology less oppressive is a great first step. And we must also accept that language is just another medium that will almost always fail to say what we truly mean.
glad to bring Jeremy Lent back on Team Human. I had him on three years ago on the publication of a pretty massive achievement called The Patterning Instinct. It was a deeply researched and considered look into the way we pattern meaning onto the world and how we might leverage that instinct to foster a future characterized by deeper connection rather than just more alienation. It's kind of like a scholarly support of the team human ethos. And we stayed in touch and we've come to rely on each other as friends do about our mutual rather existential crises, or at least I've come to depend on him for help in those ways. And he's got a new book out, Web of Meaning, that's equally powerful to his first. It's an important refutation of the orthodox materialism that's plaguing science and culture. And it's a really helpful reminder that those of us experiencing this world as a meaningful place are not the crazy ones. It's such a great pleasure talking with you, Douglas. Even before we get started, I'm just, I just, so, it's so rare to feel somebody's really with the perspectives you've got. I'm, I really appreciate mm. you. Well, I want to I want to know some things personally, but I think my listeners are going to want to know too. I read Patterning Instinct, which is this great um it's it's one of the only big books I've actually enjoyed. Do you know what I mean? It's a book like that that you could hurt someone with, like you could pick up like a, a, a Science and Sanity or something by by Korzybski and actually hurt them with it. <laughs> you know, a brick of a book, but it's like it has to be like that. It because it it tells so many important stories and weaves them together about an aspect of team human that I maybe alluded to but didn't fully understand, the sort of the way that human beings have this instinctual urge to do pattern recognition and then how that becomes our species superpower in some ways, right. you know? Yes. And, and it's beautiful. And it's beautiful. And how doing that leads to everything, everything good, which is really nice. And then now your new book, Web of Meaning, which is almost like applied pattern recognition. <sighs> and we'll talk about that. But I'm interested, because I see in your bio, and we never talked about it, you were like, like a business guy of some kind at one point. You like had real jobs. Are you like this guy, were you like an evil hedge fund guy who did ayahuasca and then turned good? Or did you have a slow (laughs) transition? Or were you always like good? I went went in the (laughs) other direction, actually. It's interesting. When I was a student in Cambridge in England, in the, I graduated in 1981. I hated the system. I was, I, I'd consider myself an anarchist. I, I lived in a squat on the other uh, side of town, you know, in, instead of in the sort of college with all the gowns and all the stuff that they were still doing there. And I was living with some Italian junkies and just thought, this is like, we got to get rid of this whole system. And after I graduated, I kind of realized I was living in Thatcher's England and this whole country uh-huh. seemed so stuck in the past with its empire still mindset. I said, I got to get out of this place. And I came to the States because of the images I had from my teens of Woodstock. It was, I was drawn to like, I want to be a hippie. I want to go and like look at things in a different way. Well, little did I realize, of course, that when I landed in the United States in 1981-82, this was Reagan's America. Yeah. Um, And so everything was turning around before, but I was this kind of young kid who didn't even realize. So I actually um, married 
my first wife, who passed away some years back, she mm. had been all over South America. She'd been through the whole hippie phase and then into like leaving it all behind, hanging out with indigenous people in the mountains of Bolivia and Peru. I just thought this was the coolest thing in the world. And uh, we actually lived for about a year together in Guatemala on Lake Atitlan, which is one of the most mystical places ever in the world. It's just unbelievable with indigenous people all around. But she wanted to, quote, go straight in her mind because she had two wow. sons who became my stepsons. She realized she wanted to give them a good start in the world. And so I did this U-turn with her and the family that I sort of married into. And I went and got an MBA. We used to call it going into the belly of the beast. We thought, okay, just do it temporarily, you know, make enough money, give them a good education, and then get ourselves free from this need. So there we went. And of course, we got sucked into it, got my MBA, went into management consulting, ended up coming to the Bay Area and started the first internet company that allowed people to apply for credit cards online in real time. And, and here's the thing, I got my MBA at the University of Chicago. So what I was doing, I was actually basically right there, literally being the belly of the beast. I was persuading consumers to get more in debt as part of the whole credit card ballooning thing. And here I was feeling so good about it, you know, like sending out this, we've got this great company. I took this, uh, this company public. It felt so cool. You could design your own credit card online in real time, uh -huh. the picture, the whole thing. We're doing good. We're helping people, yeah. you know, get access to the things they want in life. What a load of bull. Um, but this is the thing I, I, I could see now as I look back, how easy it is to persuade yourself when you're in there that you're doing good. Mm -hmm. In the great words of Anand Giridharadas, that you're doing well by doing good, which I just think is so great. But anyway, so, but then actually my whole world crashed around me. What happened was my first wife began to get very sick and I left the company to look after her. The company was too young. You know, the whole dot-com mm. crash. I don't yeah. even tell you about that. It was part of the dot-com crash. And then I got sucked into years of basically life falling apart, looking after my wife when she'd had some enough cognitive kind of borderline dementia that I really lost her as a person. Mm. And everything was crashing around me. The company I'd built, my uh, person I'd loved, everything. And that was when I said, I got to do something different. I want my life to be truly meaningful, not built on these false things that don't really work. And I didn't want to take somebody else's word for it. And that's when I started my own path of, you know, that the subtitle of The Patterning Instinct is called Humanity's Search for Meaning. And I did my own path of looking for hmm. where did meaning actually arise. And that's actually what I'm sharing the journey I took and the place that I arrived to, which I feel very blessed to have come to, is a, a sense of meaning that I'm sharing in this new book, The Web of Meaning. So to that, and I got a tremendous amount out of the book, and I guess let's talk about what I got out of it. And then it felt like it took me 80% of the way where I needed to go. And I felt like you are in some ways holding back on the last 20%, but maybe it's because the last 20% isn't true and that I need to get rid of that 20% need. So to start, years ago, I had a really difficult encounter with Richard Dawkins and some of his friends right. at my agent John Brockman's apartment. And it really upset me because um, I was there with Naomi Wolf, who's who's subsequently gotten a little, a little bit off the rails in some of her critique, but it's all very very well intentioned. We were we were in there basically arguing that there's something 
other than scientism going on here. That life is animated by something. There's weird squishiness. There's stuff they can't explain with their extreme cause and effect analysis. And you brilliantly, in this book, you go back to the absolutist reductionist position of Pierre-Simon Laplace, who I hadn't heard about since so long ago. And I saw that name and I was like, "Ah!" he's the guy that said that if you knew where every particle is and what they're doing, you could figure out where every next particle is going to be. Therefore, you know everything. I know if I knew everything, I could know exactly what you're going to do next. And then next after that, next after that, I'm going to know which baseball card the kid's going to pick out of the pot. Everything is all in those atoms. And that's wrong. Right. Well, I believe determinism is factually wrong. Yes, I think this is not a matter of depending on your perspective. I think it's just it's just nonsensical. <laughs> and what's fascinating is not just Laplace from uh, Napoleon's era who says this, but you have this Nobel Prize-winning physicist Stephen Weinberg, you know, great respected physicist, right. who says the same thing basically. The, this absolute determinist universe, which makes no sense. Right. You say in the in the book, all of nature is the way it is because of simple universal laws to which all other scientific laws may, in some sense, be reduced. Right. You know, that's exactly. The- <laughs> and you know, and he he actually puts his own italics in, like is only because you know he's he's really trying to be straight and make it really clear. And the thing is, this sort of determinism, many people make what I believe is the mistake of conflating ontological reductionism with science, basically. They say, well, this is what science tells us, and therefore science is on one side and spirituality is on the other, and right. we have to like explore this kind, all this kind of stuff. But this isn't actually not science at all. In fact, I think... In many ways, I think people like Steven Weinberg actually basically are as much theologians as they are physicists. They, they basically right. believe in a God in just the same way that a Christian believes in a God. Because the only, for, I mean, if you imagine this determinist universe, you'd have to be some God that actually had superpowers totally beyond any kind of physics powers to actually be able to know at, at one moment in time, every single fact in the entire universe spanning trillions of light years, basically, and then being able to predict them all using some sort of computation that somehow wasn't part of the actual universe, because otherwise it would affect the universe itself. So it's like this ontological belief, every bit as big a leap in faith as somebody who believes in a Christian God or whatever. And here we have this physicist doing it. That's what I call ontological reductionism. And the the thing is, reductionism itself is one of the greatest achievements in human thought, basically. This is not an attack on reductionist science, which is what we are using right now to speak with each other over thousands of miles. There are so many great benefits. Our civilization, humanity has received from the ability of reductionism to understand how things work. The mistake they make is they're so successful at figuring out so much about the universe, so then they say, this must explain everything about the universe, and only this must explain. That's where they make an ontological leap of faith that I think is completely wrong. I make the distinction between science and reductionism, because that's actually not scientific, that's that jump. No, science is filled with doubt and experimentation and repeatability. I mean, science is is wonderful, but what they've done, and, and it was, you know, Wittgenstein, who who kind of points this out, who figured it out, is they made this other assumption about science, is that, well, we live in an evidence-based reality, you know, which, yeah, there's evidence 
I guess, for that after the fact. But the assumption isn't made with evidence. It's That's just right. made as an assumption. And one of the things to understand is that oftentimes, this is part of the human patterning instinct, is oftentimes once we make an assumption, we then use our patterning instinct to see all of the data that fit within that pattern of assumptions we made and ignore the data that don't fit in there. Right. And it's useful, though. It's useful, though. I mean, that's, that's like what neurolinguistic programmers do. And they say, oh, if you're really good at swinging a baseball bat, what can you take from swinging a baseball bat to be a better husband you know (laughs) and it's it's to transfer those patterns is a good thing just not equating everything because of it that's right and it's i think part of what is needed is this recognition that whenever we do frame a way of understanding the universe which we have to do as human beings we necessarily include some things and exclude others so recognizing that to begin with is the beginning of an exploration to essentially expand our awareness and open up to other possibilities right but then what seems to have happened instead though is from uh, laplace and weinberg right to crick and watson with dna straight through to to dawkins and pinker and all those guys right. and now the sort of materialist technologists that human beings have been reduced to these kind of dna replication machines that respond passively to mimetic inputs and it's like we're not here we're just I mean, and, and tech guys love it. We're just programmable. That's right. You know, that's why I wrote my Programmer Be Programmed book. And the more we believe it, the more programmable I feel like we become. That is completely true, too, because essentially it's the whole Marshall McLuhan thing about our, our tools end up creating us. We create our tools, they create us. As we mm. conceive of ourselves as basically machines to be programmed, we actually end up becoming more and more in that experience and it becomes self-reinforcing. When we view nature as a machine, um, well, it leads to things like geoengineering. And, you know, then we actually create the reality that we perceive. And the thing is, that's not scientific because we can use evidence-based analysis to recognize that there's a whole other way of understanding reality, which is focusing on the connections between things rather than just the things themselves. And that's what I try to explore a lot in the book is to show that there is this alternative way of making sense of things that is is not just a matter of spiritual versus scientific it's actually based in hard science of the sciences of connectivity sciences with every bit the same number of nobel prize winners and peer-reviewed journals we're not talking about some woo-woo thing out there we're talking about hard science but it's sciences focusing on the connections between things and once you start recognizing those connections between things are oftentimes more important than the things themselves. It begins to take down the barriers between science and other qualities of life. Right. Well, even, you know, medical science, even doctors are now recognizing the connective tissue system inside your body as an organ. Right. Yeah. You know, and how much it determines, you know, it's like, oh, well, there are these things. But it's partly, I mean, there's so many reasons why. It's partly our language system with nouns. We have so many nouns that our children are raised, what's this? What's that? What's this? What's that? That's right. So you look at the inside of a human body and you go, stomach, liver, kidney. Right. Exactly. You don't see, wait a minute, there's connective tissue that's got these little pits in it. But it's the connective tissue is the the organism. But even the there's focusing on 
connections sometimes get still get stuck in the machine metaphor. And so, you know, for example, right. there's this great project going on right now to do the, the sort of human brain connectome and uh, trying to look at all the different connections between neurons in the brain to try to sort of understand it. But again, oftentimes people will approach that from this notion of wiring. Yeah, we're trying to figure out how the human brain is wired uh. rather than this recognition that actually this is a, a fluid, um, a self-organized loop with feedback loops that can never actually be totally predicted and where the actual physical stuff themselves is part of the connectivity too. So the, even the distinction, people make this distinction between hardware and software and they go, right, with humans it's wetware or whatever. But no, those distinctions are again false distinctions we make. There is no distinction in the neuron between the actual information it's communicating and the actual physical makeup of the neuron. Those are both parts of the same underlying reality. Right. So that's that begins to move away from some of these divides that we make. And, and I do believe one of the biggest mistakes and one of the most dangerous flaws of our modern worldview is this notion, this mechanistic way of understanding humans and and the earth and life on earth. Right. I mean, and you even, you get into a, a, a Max Tegmark, who's a, a right. physicist, and this notion of understanding life as as hardware rather than kind of a substrate-dependent yeah. goo. Right. <laughs> and this is actually interesting stuff because Max Tegmark is somebody I admire tremendously. His book, Life 3.0, he really explores the potential dangers and possibilities of AI going sort of totally extreme. Um, and I think he's a visionary. And I think he really cares about a good benevolent future. So, I mean, he's coming, I think, with the best of intentions, but I believe he's coming from a mindset that misses one of the most important fundamentals. And that's where it becomes dangerous because the whole way of thinking and setting up ethical principles for AI into the future can be based on a false foundation. So in just the same way that Weinberg had the false foundation of this reductionist, ontological reductionism, Somebody like Max Tegmark makes a false foundation of not recognizing what is really unique about life itself, not recognizing this concept of the deep animate intelligence in life itself. And so he gives this sense of these three sort of generations of basically consciousness on Earth. So you begin with life 1.0, which is just all kind of animate stuff doing their thing before humans arose. Then humans are 2.0 because we have this self-consciousness, this self-awareness, and the ability to change our own evolution so much quicker. And then AI would be 3.0 and going to this whole level, like leaving behind the substrate entirely, becoming totally substrate and independent. Right. All that is a profound understanding, but based on this recognition it's almost like sensing that consciousness, in his mind, is what really matters rather than life. And that is where I feel it's a subtle but a profound distinction. Because if you believe that consciousness is what matters rather than life, then you would actually end up supporting an AI which could potentially destroy all of life, including our current human version of life in order to develop what it thought was a higher degree of self-aware consciousness. Right. And, you, and then you say, oh, well, look, we're destroying the planet. The climate's going to kill everything. So I might as well develop enough technology to get my brain into something. And 
of course, developing that technology just hastens the destruction of the environment <laughs> which requires the thing. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's a system of life in some ways that engenders this kind of thinking and requires this kind of thinking. It's true. And it's also, by the way, a category error because there is, and this is somebody like Raymond Kurzweil, you know, who's right. a leading lights now at Google. So they've got incredible power to put technology into this stuff. And he's still believes that if he lives long enough, then the technology will be strong enough that he can upload his mind into the cloud. So he'll be essentially one of the first immortals of this new singularity. It is just a category error. It's wrong because humans, we are not dualistic entities. This is another made-up conception coming all the way back from Plato. We don't have a mind separate from a body. Again, to this point, our actual mind is an emergent process arising from the ways in which our actual neurons relate to each other as part of our nervous system, as part of our embodied enactment of being living entities. So to the extent we could upload any set of data that was some ref some mirror of our mind to some cloud, what would be created would be something entirely different than us as people. Right. There may be some potential to create some emergent self-aware AI from that. It would have nothing to do with whoever was the person that served as the base for it, though. Right. I mean, the other category error that they make, and you point this out somewhere else in the book, I think, is uh, using these sort of market analogies for the way that life interact. And I even fell into that mistake, you know, when I was talking about the, the secret life of trees and how trees, you know, give each other resources and the mushrooms facilitate the exchange and take a service fee, right, you know, right, and right. it's like service. It's not a service fee, actually. Right, it's right. It's so what what's a better way of talking about this, this interaction than than the biological stock market? Yeah. And that is so another of those powerful ways in which those ideas get inculcated into our thinking. Yeah and make us think that's what it's meant to be. We can't help it. And the thing is, there there are other profoundly beautiful and powerful ways to look at how life actually works. It turns out what evolutionary biologists have now really shown quite clearly is that rather than this whole sort of Dawkins notion of the selfish gene out-competing each other in this marketplace, actually life evolved its complexity through working out how to cooperate better with other species. The big changes in the complexity of life over billions of years have all been results of increased cooperation. So life actually arose through networking, and when we walk into the forest right now or in the ocean, any ecosystem, it's all this miraculous dance, if you will, of symbiosis, mutually beneficial symbiosis, where basically the trees take the energy from the sun, they then create food for animals, which take their seeds and like uh, scatter them elsewhere, who then put their poop into the earth, which then gets broken down to give more nutrition to the trees, to continue these cycles. And this is what life is actually about. So some modern systems biologists and cellular biologists talk about life more like as a choreography. A wonderful notion is the idea of a self-organized 
nice jazz ensemble. So it's not even, even a choreography oftentimes assumes there's somebody, somebody out there coming up with a plan. Or if you think of an orchestra, there's some composer and a conductor who tells the, you know, who sets the timing for everyone. But no, this is more like a self-organized jazz quartet. Like people just get together on the streets and start riffing and they riff off each other's energies and they create something that is emergent based on a tuning moment by moment with what others are doing and bringing their own special skills as to part of a greater harmony. That's what life is really about. It's about that, but when Jerry and Brent, both deceased now, are, are exchanging riffs in uh, Berkeley, the Greek concert where they're playing Dark Star or something, right. and you see the interplay back and forth, and right. yeah, it is that, right? And it's not like Jerry's like, oh, that's good. I'll put... I'm gonna I'm gonna Venmo you fifty cents for that riff, but you know, no, he comes back with a with a guitar riff, and Brent does a another uh, a piano riff, and it's a back and forth. But their survival is not dependent on that. When the bacteria in my body digest food in return for the enzymes that I give them and all that, we're living off it. That's not jazz. I mean, it might look like jazz, but this is a game of survival. Well, this is the thing that survival itself is something that arises from how we relate to others around us, not how we outcompete others around us. Because any entity that just is only focused on the competition rather than any kind of cooperative symbiosis will end up destroying its own environment and then collapsing. So that only arises out of imbalances in nature, not something that can be part of a truly sustainable long-term symbiosis. So in a way, we need to recognize that survival itself, along with flourishing, is fractal, is part of a greater whole, that one entity can never survive or flourish by itself unless it's part of actually creating and flourishing out external to it so that the actual environment from which it needs to feed and be alive is also retaining its health. So there's no such thing as a true apex predator. Yeah, I think that's another of those <laughs> constructions we make. It's, it's, it's a great point. Like when you look at any ecosystem, it's like, well, you, you could try to find, okay, well, what are the biggest, the big elephants or the tigers? Well, they're right. the ones who are really in charge. No, I mean, you could also go down to the fungal networks under the earth. You don't even see, are they the ones in charge or are the trees the ones in charge because they have the biggest biomass? And so people, they say, trees are the most successful family, but there's, no one's measuring success in that way other than, again, another human construct. You could say success is a little niche species that stays relatively small, but is, is you know, as happy in its place. The, this success is really itself is part of a much larger, what I call harmony in the book. This concept of nature itself discovered that actually when all the different systems work together, they can be most successful. And if we do want to talk about success the only real picture to talk about success is from the cosmological concept of entropy. That really, what physicists are all clear about is that entropy is this one law of the universe that can never be sort of repealed. It is the sort of foundation of all the stuff that happens. Trillions of years in the future, there'll be this kind of heat death of the universe as far as people can make out. But 
Here's the thing, even though entropy can't be repealed, or the second law of thermodynamics, as it's technically called, what life has done is found a loophole in it. And so what life has been doing now for billions of years is actually taken all the energy out there and actually temporarily stopped that entropy by creating these self-organized modes, essentially taking the energy, turning it into order. This is what life has now been doing for billions of years. And we are part, as humans, we're part of life's process. And we're doing that too. But now our civilization is actually beginning to do the opposite, actually work against this great, amazing, negative entropy of life. And actually, we've become as, uh, really one of the biggest forces for entropy. So when we talk about success in life, it's really the success of actually taking more and more energy from the sun or from any other source and turning it into the richness and diversity that allows this negative entropy to continue. It's interesting because the folks on the uh, many of the folks on the on the Dawkins side of the equation would say that our whole purpose for evolving in the first place was just to increase entropy. That we've been makers of entropy all along. Well, basically, they say there is no purpose for starters. You know, to the extent that they say anything's going on, it's just more like they they sh- talk about it more like this law just another sort of law of physics or whatever, that the selfishness concept. Like, well, it makes sense that if you look at everything just from the point of view of the individual separate identity, then you can argue, well, the genes that were most successful were the ones that perpetuated themselves. And so in Dawkins' words, um, it makes sense that those are the most cutthroat in this sort of uh, over billions of years will be the ones that were successful. That, again, makes a category error because it starts off by looking at reality as though it can be subdivided into these separate identities. And what systems thinking allows us to look at is this recognition that actually those are just made-up constructions. In fact, a gene itself is just a, a constructed concept. And it's simply, you know, a set of DNA which people identify as being distinct enough to be able to understand in certain ways. There is no such thing in nature as a gene. It's it's just a way in which we make sense of how the DNA works. And particularly a a selfish one. I mean, the funny thing is... uh, I mean, the very notion of that is is such nonsense. That's, again, metaphors get used to basically twist our sense of reality, which then causes us to create the reality in a way that is itself twisted. And the, the irony is, you know, uh, the Dawkins uh, Institute, whatever it's called, the Center for Inquiry, it's basically a scientific atheist, uh, right. uh, you know, anti-meaning institute. He's got a banner on it for donations. And the banner says, our members have unselfish genes. <laughs> I'm sure they do it as a joke, right. but... They are fundamentally, they're, they're saying that their whole premise is fundamentally flawed, that they are trying to engender a spirit of generosity that goes against everything that they're saying they, that <laughs> runs well, the see, universe. See, the, the, the thing is, I'll, I'll tell you how Richard Dawkins explains it. Like if he were here on the show trying to defend himself against all this right. or whatever. And, and he, he says this quite clearly in his writings. He says, I'm not supporting that selfishness. We as humans have the ability to understand that we are just mere machines driven by our selfish genes. And by being smart enough, we can overcome them. We can rebel against the selfishness of our genes. We can, And so he says, actually, we have to teach generosity, altruism, and compassion because we are born selfish. But here's mm. the great irony. 
I, you know, I believe he's got good morals. I don't think Richard Dawkins, he hates capital, you know. Yeah, in a, in a Hobbesian so, sense, right. he's got good morals, yeah. Right. So here's the thing, what I find so fascinating, he sets himself up as an atheist, but he's actually perpetuating the same dualistic myth that Christianity developed over 2,000 right. years, which is basically the, the Christian myth from Paul onwards was that we humans are these kind of bad evil bodies driven by this physical sense of greed and sexual desire and all that stuff but our soul has to like overcome that greed and it's only through this battle of the soul against our human desires those base desires that we can achieve heaven so christianity sets up this dualistic human identity where the soul which then by descartes time got turned from soul to mind and reason um, but the soul is fighting against the evil body. That's the Christian myth. Richard Dawkins has basically simply um, updated that, that dualistic myth for scientific language. Now the genes are these um, evil, selfish drives, and we are reason, um, which essentially is, in essence, is the same as the Christian soul, but without the theology around it, has to fight against it and overcome it in this dualistic right. battle. This is nonsense, and this is what, what evolutionary biologists have now shown is that actually what makes humans distinct from other primates is that we developed moral emotions millions of years ago and we had to figure out how to survive in the savannah was um, changeable conditions, dangerous. We learned to work together and we evolved a sense of group identity. We evolved a sense, a deeply felt sense of compassion, a deeply felt sense of fairness, altruism, generosity. Those are things that we care about and they're not something we have to teach people. Actually, what our society has to do is to teach infants from very young age to overcome their true group sense of love and generosity and care to become selfish people who are only interested in being successful so they can then be more fodder for this capitalist machine. Right. Otherwise... Little Johnny will never make it out there. Exactly. You know, we could be sexist about it. No, Janie, all right, you could be a little bit good. Right. But Johnny, <laughs> you're going to have to know how to fight if you're out there. But exactly. the narrative that you're using, as I understand it, implies that meaning, the real meaning, is sort of an emergent phenomenon. That meaning is something that we sort of get in the future. It's not like there was meaning as a pre-existing condition, you know, that there was like meaning before the Big Bang, that there was consciousness and love and stuff, looking for a way to, you know, express itself through matter and Big Banging and all. But like, it's it's sort of, it's more of a, of a, of a telos, that meaning is this journey toward meaning. Yes, yes. I see a lot. In fact, I see meaning in a same sort of category as other profound concepts that we sort of live in all the time, things like consciousness or um, things like life itself. Some of the biggest concepts in our existence are emergent processes, meaning that they actually arise as an emergent, emergent phase transition, if you will, from lots of complex uh, things in systems connecting together, causing them to arise. So life itself is actually a process, emergent. And meaning, I do see as being similar. And I give, to, to help to sort of 
uh, get some clarity around this. These are all sort of very abstract concepts. The simple analogy I use is to just think about the last time you saw a rainbow. You know, everyone's kind of got that memory of a rainbow. And so when you think about the rainbow, you can say, well, does that rainbow really exist? And somebody, a reductionist might come along and say, no, that rainbow doesn't exist at all. It's simply, and this is what a rainbow is, it's basically an emergence concept that arose from a combination of the sun hitting rays, getting refracted, and you picking up those refractions in your eyes and perceiving them in your brain. Now, if you think about at that moment when you saw a rainbow, there were innumerable rainbow potentials all around at that same time. The sun was getting refracted in all kinds of places. But that doesn't mean that there were like a hundred million rainbows happening right at that moment. There was that one rainbow that you saw, or maybe another rainbow that your um, friend saw who was right next to you, in seeing it that you were enacting that rainbow. And similarly, in the same way that with consciousness, that only arises when incredible numbers of millions, hundreds of millions of different nerve cells react, relate to each other in feedback loops to enact consciousness from one moment to the next. And we can understand meaning in the same kind of way. It's something that we enact by attuning to the various rhythms of the universe. So through our subjective awareness and meaning potentials are all out there, just like rainbow potentials. But when we enact it, it's actually become something that is that we can see as an emergent reality. I mean, and that's, you know, that's the way, you know, God describes himself in the Hebrew Bible. You know, he says, you know, to take the take the idol off the top of the ark, gather around it, and then I'll come to you, mm. you know, in the empty space. Mm -hmm. So it really is, you know, it's an emergent phenomenon of people gathered with the right intention and interacting, connecting with one another. Yes, and I, and I feel that that makes sense personally. I mean, try to imagine, which is hard to imagine because we have to define ourselves out of existence, but imagine a universe a total universe where there was absolutely no life anywhere in the universe, just a simple bunches of dead rocks hitting each other and um, zero life, zero potential for life. Like, so that means that basically it would be no energy because as soon as you have energy, there is this potential for life to self-organize. Right. So imagine a universe like that. Well, I would be pretty comfortable to say that's a meaningless universe. There is no meaning. There's no meaning will ever arise from these things hitting each other. Thankfully, we don't live in that universe. They can't even hit each other at that point because if they're moving around, there's energy. Exactly. It's so it's got to be totally still. As soon as the end, as soon as this universe got formed in the Big Bang, that meaning potential got formed with it because the energies, the self-organization of the energies, starting from the first electrons, the first atoms onwards, allowed this potential for life itself to emerge. Not, I mean, we only know about this one instance, but I feel it's a pretty good bet that there's, you know, all kinds of instances of other intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. Or if not even elsewhere, else time. You know, in other words, the, there was a Big Bang, so there was something. I mean, I know they don't like to talk about it. There was something before the Big Bang. That's right. Right? There was stuff. So, you know, it might be just another breath of this thing. There exactly. might have been all these exactly. things with meaning and flying bugs and angels and whatever. That's right. You know, and then they Big Banged into us, and then it started over or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. And I do think, ultimately, those lead to questions that I don't even think humans may ever 
with all of our reason, with all of our science, and even through AI and all the rest of it, we'll ever be able to answer some of these questions, which is simply, why is there something and not nothing? And that, to me, is the, the profoundest question of all. And I don't know if ever we can even become close to really trying to answer that. And the kind of meaning that you're writing about doesn't not that it, it doesn't acknowledge there, but it doesn't go there. You're sticking with meaning, like meaning since the Big Bang that emerged from matter and biology, right. interacting and all that. And then we human beings have these weird little brains and relationships, and we can start to now make or interpret meaning and all that. But there still could be like big God something somewhere making all this. That's right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to make that ontological leap of faith that those reductionists do that I'm talking about and say, I've got the answer to everything in the universe uh, <laughs> before time began. And the, No, but what I am talking about is the simple understanding that I came to, that actually what modern sciences have begun to uncover when looking at the connections between things, leading to some of the greatest insights that traditional wisdom from indigenous knowledge around the world to Buddhism, Taoism, and other great traditions have pointed to for millennia, which is that in our existence, as we understand it, it's all the interconnectedness between things actually is the source of that meaning. And that we live in an interconnected universe. We live in an interconnected world, and our very identity is actually a function of that connectedness. And once we begin to unravel the implications of that, what is both scientifically valid and actually deeply meaningful to some of these great wisdom traditions, we get a different way of looking at how to live in this world today and a different source of values than what our mainstream world is telling us. And that meaning, that experience of meaning, at least uh, Tyson Yunkaporta would argue, is shared not just by people, but by bugs and trees and rocks and birds. Oh, that's right. It, they're, they are part of that, even that's if they're right. not thinking they're part of it. Yes. And yeah, uh, Tyson Yunkaporta is one of the greatest voices right now in our world today of in indigenous wisdom connecting with systems understanding to try to show a different that different way of making sense of things and i uh, and i full wholeheartedly agree with what he's saying i call it in my book animate intelligence or animate consciousness that you know far from this Descartes, this Cartesian notion of I think, therefore I am, and this notion that only thing that makes us human is our conscious thinking, symbolic intelligence. Actually, we have an animate intelligence that we share with all of life. And what biologists are now discovering is that animate intelligence is far greater in its scope and its intelligence than even the best AI we can come up with. It's nature's own AI. And we find that even in the tiniest cell, we find it in trees, how they connect. Trees have like up to 20 senses and they have a networked intelligence that allows them to make sense of the world in a way that we can't even begin to conceive. 
Right. And we barely have begun to acknowledge is the almost saddest part of it. It breaks my heart that people can walk through a forest and not know that it's alive, you know, yes. <laughs> that it's truly alive, not just in the way that you could eat it, right? That's right. <laughs> or, exactly. Or burn it. That's right. And that's the thing. And the thing that's even most heartbreaking about that is that because that is what our mainstream world believes it's feels that it's fine to go around thing like destroying the old growth forest that is still left in the world as if there's simply nothing other than a large amount of timber that can be used to make a a few more decks for people in the suburbs somewhere rather than these incredible deep fonts of wisdom that have evolved that themselves have been alive for thousands of years developing this deep understanding of reality that is just being shut down destroyed by our ignorance was it? I think it was Tyson who was talking about Avatar depression. Mm. The idea that he felt like American society got depressed after the movie Avatar <laughs> because people got to see, oh, everything is actually alive and connected and conscious on a certain That's way. Right. And after like, oh my God, we're so disconnected. We That's just right. tear this stuff down. And uh. I know. I love that. In reality, actually, I think that Avatar is that what we need the most, that kind of way of using mass media to inspire people's imaginations to break out of these confinements of our worldview and see what else is possible. So yeah, I, I totally hear what he's saying. And of course, he's somewhat of a joke about that, because the thing is that it did make people become aware of a different way of looking at life. And of course, what's beautiful about Avatar is that even though it's portrayed as science fiction, it's actually portraying the reality of what our world is about, this deep wisdom. The mother trees really are for real. Um, The deep wisdom of Gaia is for real. And that's what biologists are beginning to uncover. And of course, no surprise that actually Suzanne Simard, who is a person who discovered how trees communicate with each other in what she calls the wood wide web. She was actually mm. brought in to advise the film the makers of Avatar because they recognized to their great credit how leading she was in her understanding. Do you feel like it's, is it enough to spend our careers and efforts sort of just making people aware of these connections and this web of meaning in which we're enmeshed? Or, I mean, do you take a a more activist approach to things? Are we called upon to do more than this right now? Yes. Yes, we are. We are. I firmly believe that. And I think to be more specific about what I mean... Once we begin to recognize this animate intelligence of which we're part, once we begin to expand our sense of identity, to go not just beyond our individuality to our group or even to all of humanity as a species, but to all of life, we have to then begin to ask ourselves, what is it that life asks from me? Basically, we get to the deep recognition at some point of, I am life. I'm not all of life. I am part of life and life is within me. And then once I recognize that, I begin to feel within my very being the pain of the destruction our civilization is causing to life. And now I've listened myself very, I've tried to listen very in a tuned way to this question, what does life want from me? One of the things I think that life wants from all of us is to feel its pain, to feel the destruction that's taking place, to recognize that actually life is getting like mutilated, destroyed, ravaged by our civilization at an increasing rate. 
And once we feel that, life does not ask us to then fall into this whirlpool of angst and be in this place of misery, but to actually take that and energize that, to take, to take that skillfully, to turn it around into asking ourselves, how can each of us find out what we can do most effectively to actually make a stand for life against these depredations? There's this great statement, actually, that was in COP21 in Paris, which says, we are not fighting for nature. We are nature fighting for itself. So similarly, what we're called upon, in just the same way that if someone was kind of hurting your arm and hitting you, and you felt like your arm was about to, um, to like get broken, you're not going like, to keep sitting there and say, oh, how interesting. You're going to do something about it to try to protect that. Similarly, when we really feel what is going on, we're driven not by a sense, by that Dawkins sense of trying to apply some moral concept to what we say we should be doing, but we're driven by an impulsion to do everything we can in, our, in these cells that create this life to really struggle for life. Now, in some people's cases, the most skillful thing may be to write about it. Others, the most skillful thing may be to actually form communities and develop permaculture installations or whatever. Other people, it might be getting out there on the front line and being allies to the indigenous people, fighting to protect their rivers against pipelines or whatever. Each person's got their own drive, but none of us can say that it's enough to just simply watch what's going on and describe it without recognizing that we are all part of actually fighting for life. I like that. It folds intuition into the process as well, mm -hmm. you know, and makes for a much more integrated, whole person approach to, uh, you know, making the world more hospitable to itself. <laughs> right. Maybe we sound heady in our little conversation, but this book, as uh, just as Patterning Instinct, is extremely accessible and very scientifically and historically rich perspective on how we got here and um, how we can uh, live our way, um, live our way through this moment. Well, thank you, Douglas. It's always such a great pleasure to be in conversation with you. And thank you for what you're doing, because I just love how you are keeping Team Human alive and helping us to recognize <laughs> who we actually are. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for being on Team Human. Thanks for being on Team Human. If you want to follow up with Jeremy Lent, you can join us in the Team Human Lounge on Friday, August 6th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Find out more by joining Team Human on Patreon or through teamhuman.fm. Jeremy Lent's new book, The Web of Meaning, is available everywhere now. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.